Welcome to another edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being here with us. As you guys know right now, one of the big issues is our climate. And you know what? It's great to know that we have thinkers out there that are looking in every, from, every, from every side. They're actually thinking about how best do we handle this, whether it's from the economic side, the social side, etc. Anyhow, Stuart McIntosh is the author of Climate Crisis Economics, The Net Zero Transition that will be published in September 2021 by the Rutledge Press. It is his third book. Stuart is executive director of the Group of 30, an international financial think tank composed of the world's leading central bankers, financial leaders, and academics. McIntosh is a past president of the National Association of Business Economics, the largest and most influential community of senior economists in America and globally. McIntosh speaks widely to diverse audiences. His commentaries and analysis are published in Specialist Journalists and the General Press. Stuart, welcome to Politics and Right. How are you doing today? Great. It's a pleasure to see you, Alberto. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, look, we, we, we have a lot to talk about, a little bit of time. So let's get real busy into the core of this thing. First of all, uh, tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book, Yet to be Unleashed. Well, I felt that we, we needed to think, think again about how we talk about climate crisis, about how we discuss it amongst ourselves, and about the goals and the glide paths to get us from a polluting present to a green and sustainable tomorrow. Now, this is a topic which is extremely urgent now, as, as, you, as we all know, and we can see it and feel it literally. Uh, yesterday and today, we can see the heat uh, in the West, in Oregon, bearing down on yes. people, in some cases, threatening people's lives. Because of course, if you're old or, or compromised from a health perspective, these temperatures might kill you. And so it, 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 I felt it, we needed, I needed to make an intervention and lay out the challenges, the dangers, but also to make the case that actually we can do this. This is the paradoxical challenge we face. It's not that there are no solutions, that the situation is hopeless. Rather, it is that we know what we need to do. It's just that we oftentimes, too often, don't do what we know we should do, or as my as my old maths professor in Scotland used to used to say to me, if I may use Scots for a moment, he said, oh, yes. it's no that you couldn't, it's that you wouldn't. In other words, it's not that you can't do it. It's not that we can't make the transition. It's that too often we just don't want to, but we can and we must. Now, I'm going to be, look, uh, the climate, issue should never or should never have been a political issue. Uh, back in 1979, uh, President Carter, then actually a little after 79, came up with a program called Sin Fuels. It was during the oil, oil crisis. Likewise, uh, he did things like he put solar panels on the roof for, uh, of the White House. And we started into a progression sort of uh, similar to what occurred in Brazil, where mm -hmm. they created a really green energy in that they created a gas, I mean, gas from plants, which is a recyclable, et cetera. A lot of this, in my opinion, has to do with direction, has to do with leadership. Um, what has been wrong with American leadership since we've known about this problem for such a long time? It's a really good 
example you give of, of President Carter understanding the threat. Because what happened after that was that the Republican Party recognized that people were getting more concerned about the climate and worried about the climate and wanted action. Because when people uh, see a crisis and realize a crisis, they then turn to the government and they say, do something about it. Now, the famous Republican pollster, Mr. Luntz, wrote an epochal memo where he said he said the way that the Republicans should fight green the green the surge and the demands for action was to bring this or suggest that the science was in doubt and say that it was still in dispute because if the science was in, in dispute then perhaps we wouldn't need to act whereas if the science was certain then the, the voters would say well get on with it then. and the sad thing is for decades after President Carter was being dynamic and, and, and sensible about it. We had the overhang of this Luntz memo in politics where one side of the political debate said, the science is in dispute. We know that that's not the case. Net zero is a scientific certainty. It is not a slogan, but we've lost decades because of that. Let me just make another point related to the 1970s, which is relevant. At that time, when President Carter was making the right decision, but perhaps was not a strong enough leader to push it through. The Swedish took a similar position. They said, my goodness, look at this oil crisis and also look at the climate implications of this oil crisis and the costs on, on our planet. We will instigate a carbon tax. And they put into place a carbon tax and they have it today. And it's the highest in the world. It's $130 per ton. But as a result of that process that was started decades ago in Sweden, they are now essentially carbon neutral. They've changed their entire economy and they are a successful social democratic economy with low levels of inequality and high levels of growth. In other words, they've demonstrated you can make the transition. They started earlier, so their costs were less than our costs will be today. But we can do it with, as you say, leadership. You cannot do it without leadership. We need leadership. I'm pleased to see that leadership evident in the United States, in President Biden, in his staff and, and administration picks now. You hear it repeatedly. This is not just sloganizing. This is a real shift. And thank goodness, perhaps we're not too late. You know, um, Stuart, one of the reasons I think books like you've written and yourself needs a lot more exposure is that uh, too often on the other side, when I talk about the other side, I'm not talking politically now, I'm mm -hmm. talking about those who disregard uh, climate change, uh, they, they have a big voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and for some reason, the mainstream, what we call the mainstream media tends to give them a bigger worth than they are worth, if you will. Now, uh, you mentioned about uh, how the lost decades. Now, we are in a we are likely in the most capitalist country that we have and one of the definitions of capitalism is the uh the, the smart allocation of resources the efficient allocation of resources and supposedly that means that it there should be a market that could discern these eventualities these things that would create problems uh wouldn't you say that that points out a distinct failure in the way we practice our form, our economic system that right now has us in danger at a tipping point in the world. After all, between yes. us 
a capitalist country, and China, who we like to call a communist country, but is really a communist capitalist country. Capitalism has nothing to do with what with your political system. Uh, don't you think there is a problem that has to be resolved first before we can really get into this model that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that is a very important piece, which is we, we, we economists have known for decades that the fundamental failure of market economics is to internalize the cost of carbon. We all do it, right? We get on a, a, a plane that's super cheap to fly short distances, spewing out carbon dioxide. We drive cars that are very polluting. We uh, perhaps eat too much meat and make ourselves unwell, or at least a little bit overweight. There are all these things that we do where, where we're not internalizing the cost because the, because the policymakers haven't made that determination. They haven't said, look, we need to price things realistically. And a realistic pricing includes the damage that you're doing to produce that good. Now, in most cases, it wouldn't create a dramatic, disastrous change to everyone's lives. No. Would your burger be fractionally more expensive? Yes, it would. Uh, would the flight you take be slightly more expensive? Yes, it would. Some policymakers, like in France, are making taking more radical steps. So they're doing, for instance, in France, if, if, the, if the journey is less than three hours, you can't take a plane. You have to take the train if the train is available. In other words, they're telling the, 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 the airlines where there's a functioning high-speed rail network over this distance, uh, you cannot fly there because it's too polluting. Now, that's a radical solution. Now, I'm not suggesting we can get to that solution in America because America is much more market-oriented. But what we can do is say to the businesses and to even us as consumers that we have to pay the real price of what we're doing. And we know that when you do that, People change. Take, for example, this tiny, small change that was done recently in many communities in D.C., where, where they said, OK, you can have your plastic bag at the grocery, but yes. you've got to pay an extra five cents. And what they find is that behaviorally, when the person is sold, oh, I have to pay an extra five cents. I don't want to do that. It's, you know, five cents is nothing. But the, the, it triggers in our minds, God, why, I'm not doing that. Now, everybody carries their own bags. I know you do. I know I do. So there's an ex the point I'm making here is you need to change those incentives. And small shifts in incentives can have very large and significant changes in behavior. And the market system can accelerate things very rapidly. So, for instance, with the announcement by GM uh, last year that they were going full on into EVs, it changed all of the calculus for the rest of the automobile industry. And I can say that I just recently, and this is not an advert, this is just showing you I'm responding to, that I put my deposit down for, uh, for the F-150 light, Lightning. Uh, hey, this, this thing's gonna go from zero to, zero to 60 in five seconds. And it's, and, it's car, you know, and it's carbon neutral, it's fantastic. I'm totally I going for it. Look, let me tell you, I'm an engineer by training, and when I saw that F-150 pulling a, a, um, a train, a, a full locomotive, it was like, what people don't understand is with, with, with electricity, you have more control, better gearing, et cetera, that allows you a small device like that to pull a train, which a combustion engine is a bit more com com you know, complicated yes. to do that. 
So it was great seeing that, and it's great that you you have it down on the F-150. And, and the, the, the thing about that example, and there are many examples like this on when we talk about how we get from here to there to net zero, it's not, it's not simply a cost. Oftentimes there are really superb innovations involved in that shift. And so what it means is I get a better product, uh, well-paid jobs are created in America for union workers, producing American uh, goods, and you get more jobs in that new sector, which pay better than the old jobs, because that's one of the things we've seen from the pandemic response is that people realize that maybe a lot of jobs are undervalued and we need to rethink about how we pay people and what we pay them for. And I think the future, the green globalization 2.0, I like to call it, is going to actually be more prosperous, potentially more, equitable and of course sustainable so it's not a question of this is going to cost me we can't afford it it's no the future can be better and moreover we must afford it you know uh, i I'm, that last statement that you made is extremely important we must we must that word must because um you gave some good reasoning you point out that yes it can create more jobs Yes, it can be more prosperous. And yes, we can use it as the platform to make our systems more equitable. Now, that said, it's not really true that it, it definitely has to make us more equitable, right? We could still right. have the, the master on the top making all the spoils like he does right now. Uh, where, where, you know, capitalism sort of skews everything up. We can use this as a reason to more to make things more equitable and you know it's almost like a restart but here's my 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 question why is it that we have to sell saving the planet ultimately saving our lives by saying oh it's going to make things more prosperous oh it's going to make more jobs It, it seems like if this is something that is existential that shouldn't even be a part of the equation that's right and so it is a it's 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 a tension. Some people uh, will 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 resonate with the job narrative and understand. And we need to create. Right. We need to sustain the economy anyway. We can't say to people, "You can save the you can save the planet, but you will live in penury." That's not going to work as a political matter. So you need to have a, a narrative that says how 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 tomorrow a green tomorrow will be a better, more equitable, and stronger, potentially more equitable. Uh, uh, existence. However, you're absolutely right. There are there are ethical and moral reasons why we should do this anyway. Why we have to do it anyway, because we live on this planet. We don't live outside the planet. Right. And if if we face ecological collapse because we fail to act, it is we are going to tip into a hothouse world where we can never come back. Not in the not in the realms of human history anyway. And we need to remember those that stark warning. Let me give you one example. There was a period earlier in prehistory called the Younger Dryas, which took place about 11,000 years ago, when there was a sudden warning, warming of the planet, flooding large parts of, of what was then the European landmass. The reason why it's important to, to remember these, these instances, and many people don't know about them. Actually, I'm learning this right now. Is that... People think that climate change goes slowly, slowly, and oh, it's very diffuse. And it's, okay, the temperature's gone up just a tiny bit, but let's not worry. 
right? Because it seems like that. You get every year there's about two, two additional parts per billion in carbon dioxide added to the, to the atmosphere. Now it's at 414 parts, which is the highest level in human history. We should be extremely worried about that. But it seems to be so gradual that most of the time it doesn't wor worry us. But the real danger is that what happens actually in complex climate systems is that it goes slowly and then you hit a sudden breakpoint. You can't tell when it's going to happen and boom, everything changes. So in the case of the Younger Dryas, there was an increase in temperature of 10 degrees C over a decade. Oh, and consider that. It's a staggering increase. Uh, so the seas rose, large parts of the landmass of Europe disappeared beneath the waves. They've never been seen since. Before that, I, my ancestors could walk from Scotland to mainland Europe. You can't do that anymore because the seas rose. So the point I'm making here, and this is going to your point about why we have to, we do have to have a sense of urgency. And it, it's not just about short-term economic benefits. It's about the sustainability of life on earth. And we see those danger signs all over the place. We see them in California in, 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 the, in the drought and the fires in California. We see it in Australia with the terrible, terrible fires. We see it in Bangladesh last year where there was over a third of the country submerged by water. We can see it again and again. And we, so there is, there's, it's, it's both an economic argument, but it must be one also of consistent urgency because we know from the pandemic response from COVID, you, the best thing to do when you confront a crisis is act immediately. Don't delay. The longer you delay, the worse the outcome. Absolutely. So I have two more important questions. First one is um, I can, an economic system is human made. We created an economic system to serve us. As we look at the entire earth today, there's a, there are a whole lot of people on the earth. There's a whole lot of work to be done. Right now, we simply are not connecting the people with all the work that needs to be done, which is really, to, I mean, that's a failure of an economic system. Shouldn't we be working on one that in doing so would also mitigate all these issues that we're talking about? Yes, we need to have a fairer ba balance and a more equitable response. So because people the world over understand that and we understood it during the COVID response, that because everybody bore the brunt of it together fairly, People will carry burdens, but they are not going to carry a burden if they feel that they are getting repeatedly the short end of the climate stick and the short end of the economic stick. And so if I was in Africa or I'm in India or I'm in other poor parts of the world, where, which have essentially contributed almost nothing to the climate crisis, which has been created entirely by the advanced economies, overspending, overpolluting. And I'm told, well, you've got to do all these changes and we're not going to support you uh, sink or swim, literally. I, I'm, I'm probably going to get pretty upset and I won't be able to respond or I will refuse because I'm not being supported. And the cost of supporting people to a more equitable outcome where everybody makes the leap together is minuscule. When you think that the current commitments is 100 billion a year, to lesser developed countries. And the major advanced economies are still bickering over it in advance of COP26 in November. They still haven't agreed to actually give the money they were supposed to give in, the, in, the, in any case. I'm saying, well, you should give double that. You should give 200 billion a year. This is small beer. Bear in mind that, 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 that in the pandemic response, the advanced economies spent $15 trillion. 
to maintain their economies. In the, in, in the scheme of things, 100 billion or 200 billion a year to make the transition okay. achievable in Africa and in poorer countries is entirely uh, doable. We can do it. We especially, just especially when those countries were used as the raw material for the Industrial Revolution from of all course. the resources that yes. were extracted from them. Now, you know, you, you, you think... You think as you jumped my last question because the last question that I was going to place to you was, uh, and you kind of alluded to that, that carbon in the air right now that has if that has caused climate change was mostly done by the industrialized countries. So to ask all the other countries not to get uh, more wealth, develop more wealth, right. develop more items, uh, they have to be paid for that because they they are not the ones that caused this issue so how do we the one of the problems is i don't believe it or not you're one of the few that actively say that because when you ask many people right now hey um america needs to do so much to reduce its carbon footprint the first thing is well china is throwing a whole lot of carbon in the air well india is throwing a whole lot of carbon in the air they're not going to reduce and it's like well we have to create the incentive because they're developing now we we got rich on what we threw up there in the air. How shouldn't we be educating our peoples in these, in these Western countries to that reality and realize that it's now time to compromise? Yes, I think so. And let me, let me give you an example of why this works. And this, because part of what I talk about in the book is about the need for new stories about how we think and talk and converse about climate change. Why does that matter? That matters because we need a proper, particularly in America, we need to have a face-to-face -face discussion in our local communities about, about what climate change is. So agreeing the facts, because they are facts, these are not disputable political notions. The scientists can show us and would show us, the, this are the, these are the facts. Once we agree the facts together, as communities, as neighbors, as friends, not as ad adversaries, the question then becomes, as we said at the beginning of our conversation, not whether something is happening, but what do we do about it? And we can then have arguments about, well, I want to use this policy as opposed, I want to use taxes, I want to use incentives. And my, my answer is, it's all of the above. But we need to have those conversations. And in having those conversations, we can get past the antagonism, past the false narratives and uh, you know, uh, social media driven foolishness and come to a recognition that we are all in it together. And that means in America, but it also means our countries elsewhere because we need investments for the future, green investments for the future in countries where their economies, their economies and peoples are still growing. Those green investments will be in Africa. They will be in other countries, not just ours. And so it's in our, it's in our collective benefit to our collective good good that we help them make that transition because we will benefit too. Absolutely. So um, interestingly, a lot of NGOs are working in Africa with things like solar cells to, 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 to do things out in the boondocks and different forms of communication. Anyhow, last question that I always ask is what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you? Um, good question. Uh, can, can we do it fast okay. enough? I, I, I grapple with my own Scottish pessimism because I, I'm a Scot and Scots are very pessimistic. We're always saying that, that, that things are going to be bad, so just accept it. 
no i since i'm american now as well i have to be an optimist right. so i say can we do it we i think we can do it i think we have once we recognize the crisis together as communities as americans as as citizens of the world we can make the leap it is it is not to a disastrous future it can be a much better more equitable sustainable future uh, we can do it we just need to uh, make the leap this year. We can't delay. We've got only a few decades. Really, we need to do most of what we have to have before us before 2030. We can do it. Let's get off our backsides. Let's force the leaders who are meeting in Glasgow in November to, to be ambitious and aggressive and not timid. Stuart McIntosh, author of Climate Crisis Economics, The Net Zero Transition that will be published September 2021 by the Rutledge Press. Thank you so kindly for having been a part of Politics Done Right. Thank you, Egberto. It's a pleasure. Take care. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.